welcome to Mindfulness of Doom, a weekly podcast about life, peaceful living, and existential dread. You're not lost. Everyone's faking it, and the purpose of life is, um, enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 14 of Mindfulness of Doom. This week's episode is a bonus extra special super content. Content. That's right. We're feeling a little bit guilty about missing our New Year's episode, so we've got a treat for you today. Brian and I are going to narrate the short story The Bet by Anton Chekhov. My brother recently brought this story to our attention and thought it would be great to share it with our listeners. In next week's episode, we'll discuss the story and we'd love to hear your comments on it as well. Please email us your thoughts and reactions to mindfulnessofdoom at gmail.com and we'll discuss them with you on next week's episode. We hope you enjoy this narrative experience of Doom. The Bet by Anton Chekhov. It was a dark autumn night. The old banker was walking up and down his study and remembering how, fifteen years before, he had given a party one autumn evening. There had been many clever men there, and there had been interesting conversations. Among other things, they had talked of capital punishment. The majority of the guests among who were many journalists and intellectual men disapproved of the death penalty. They considered that form of punishment to be out of date, immoral, and unsuitable for Christian states. In the opinion of some of them, the death penalty ought to be replaced everywhere by imprisonment for life. I disagree with you, said the host of banker. I have not tried either the death penalty or imprisonment for life, but if one may judge a priori, the death penalty is more moral and more humane than imprisonment for life. Capital punishment kills a man at once, but lifelong imprisonment kills him slowly. Which executioner is the more humane? He who kills you in a few minutes, or he who drags the life out of you in the course of many years? Both are equally immoral, observed one of the guests, for they both have the same object, to take away life. The state is not God. It is not the right to take away what it cannot restore when it wants to. Among the guests was a young lawyer, a young man of five and twenty. When he was asked his opinion, he said, The death sentence and the life sentence are equally immoral, but if I had to choose between the death penalty and imprisonment for life, I would certainly choose the second. To live anyhow is better than to not at all. A lively discussion arose. The banker, who was younger and more nervous in those days, was suddenly carried away by excitement. He struck the table with his fist and shouted at the young man, It's not true! I bet you two millions you would not stay in solitary confinement for five years. If you mean that in earnest, said the young man, I'll take the bet. But I would stay not five years, but fifteen years. Fifteen? Done, cried the banker. Gentlemen, I stake two millions. Agreed. You stake your millions, and I stake my freedom, said the young man and this wild, senseless bet was carried out. The banker, spoiled and frivolous with millions beyond his reckoning, was delighted at the bet. At supper, he made fun of the young man and said, Think better of it, young man, while there is still time. To me, two millions are a trifle, but you are losing three or four of the best years of your life. I say three or four because you won't stay longer. Don't forget, either, you unhappy man, 
that voluntary confinement is a great deal harder to bear than compulsory. The thought that you have the right to step out in a liberty at any moment will poison your whole experience in prison. I am sorry for you. And now the banker, walking to and fro, remembered all of this, and asked himself, What was the object of that bet? What is the good of that man's losing fifteen years of his life, and my throwing away two millions? Can it prove that the death penalty is better or worse than imprisonment for life? No, no. It was all nonsensical and meaningless. On my part, it was the caprice of pampered man, and on his part, simple greed for money. Then he remembered what followed that evening. It was decided that the young man should spend the years of his captivity under the strictest supervision in one of the lodges in the banker's garden. It was agreed that for fifteen years he should not be free to cross the threshold of the lodge, to see human beings, to hear the human voice, or to receive letters and newspapers. He was allowed to have a musical instrument and books, and was allowed to write letters, to drink wine, and to smoke. By the terms of the agreement, the only relations he could have with the outer world were by a little window made purposefully for that object. He might have anything he wanted, books, music, wine, and so on, in any quantity he desired, by writing in order, but could only receive them through the window. The agreement provided for every detail and every trifle that would make his imprisonment strictly solitary and bound the young man to stay there exactly fifteen years, beginning from twelve o'clock of November 14th, 1870, and ending at twelve o'clock of November 14th, 1885. The slightest attempt on his part to break the conditions, if only for two minutes before the end, released the banker from the obligation to pay him two millions. For the first years of his confinement, as far as one could judge from his brief notes, the prisoner suffered severely from loneliness and depression. The sounds of the piano could be heard continually day and night from his lodge. He refused wine and tobacco. Wine, he wrote, excites the desires, and desires are the worst foes of the prisoner. And besides, nothing could be more dreary than drinking good wine and seeing no one and tobacco spoilt the air of his room. In the first year, the books he sent for were principally of a light character, novels with a complicated love plot, sensational and fantastic stories, and so on. In the second year, the piano was silent in the lodge, and the prisoner asked only for the classics. In the fifth year, music was audible again, and the prisoner asked for wine. Those who watched him through the window said that all that year he spent doing nothing but eating and drinking, lying on his bed, frequently yawning and angrily talking to himself. He did not read books. Sometimes at night he would sit down to write. He would spend hours writing, and in the morning tear up all that he had written. More than once he could be heard crying. In the second half of the sixth year, the prisoner began zealously studying languages, philosophy, and history. He threw himself eagerly into these studies. So much so, the banker had enough to do to get him the books he ordered. In the course of four years, some six hundred volumes were procured at his request. It was during this period that the banker received the following letter from his prisoner. My dear jailer, I write you these lines in six languages. 
Show them to the people who know the languages. Let them read them. If they find not one mistake, I implore you to fire a shot in the garden. That shot will show me that my efforts have not been thrown away, that the geniuses of all ages of all lands speak different languages, but the same flame burns in them all. Oh, if you only knew what unearthly happiness my soul feels now for being able to understand them. The prisoner's desire was fulfilled. The banker ordered two shots to be fired in the garden. Then, after the tenth year, the prisoner sat immovably at the table and read nothing but the gospel. It seemed strange to the banker that a man who in four years had mastered six hundred volumes should waste nearly a year over one thin book easily of comprehension. Theologies and histories of religion followed the Gospels. In the last two years of his confinement, the prisoner read an immense quantity of books, quite indiscriminately. At one time he was busy with the natural sciences, and then he would ask for Byron or Shakespeare. There were notes in which he demanded at the same time on books for chemistry, and a manual of medicine, and a novel, and some treatise on philosophy or theology. His reading suggested a man swimming in the sea among the wreckage of a ship, and trying to save his life by greedily clutching first at one spar and then another. The old banker remembered all this and thought, Tomorrow at twelve o'clock he will regain his freedom. By our agreement, I ought to pay him two millions. If I do pay him, it is all over with me. I shall be utterly ruined. Fifteen years before, his millions had been beyond his reckoning. Now he was afraid to ask himself which were greater, his debts or his assets. Desperate gambling on the stock exchange, wild speculation, and the excitability which he could not get over, even in advancing years, had by degrees led to the decline of his fortune, and the proud, fearless, self-confident millionaire had become a banker of middling rank, trembling at every rise and fall in his investments. Cursed bet! muttered the old man, clutching his head in despair. Why didn't the man die? He's only forty now. He will take my last penny from me. He will marry, will enjoy life, will gamble on the exchange, while I shall look at him with envy like a beggar, and hear from him every day the same sentence. I am indebted to you for the happiness of my life. Let me help you. No, it is too much. The one means of being saved from bankruptcy and disgrace is the death of that man. It struck three o'clock. The banker listened. Everyone was asleep in the house, and nothing could be heard outside but the rustling of the chilled trees. Trying to make no noise, he took from a fireproof safe the key of the door which had not been opened for fifteen years, put on his overcoat, and went out of the house. It was dark and cold in the garden. Rain was falling. A damp cutting wind was racing about the garden, howling and giving the trees no rest. The banker strained his eyes, but could see neither the earth, nor the white statues, nor the lodge, nor the trees. Going to the spot where the lodge stood, he twice called the watchman. No answer followed. Evidently, the watchman had sought shelter from the weather, and was now asleep somewhere either in the kitchen or in the greenhouse. If I had the pluck to carry out my intention, thought the old man, suspicion would fall first on the watchman. He felt in the darkness for the steps and the door, and went into the entry of the lodge. Then he groped his way into the little passage and lighted a match. 
there was not a soul there. There was a bedstead, and no bedding on it, and in the corner there was a dark cast-iron stove. The seals on the door leading to the prisoner's room were intact. When the match went out, the old man, trembling with emotion, peeped through the little window. A candle was burning dimly in the prisoner's room. He was sitting at the table. Nothing could be seen but his back, the hair on his head, and his hands. Open books were lying on the table, on the two easy chairs and on the carpet near the table. Five minutes passed and the prisoner did not once stir. Fifteen years of imprisonment had taught him to sit still. The banker tapped at the window with his finger and the prisoner made no movement whatever in response. Then the banker cautiously broke the seals off the door and put the key in the keyhole. The rusty lock gave a grating sound and the door creaked. The banker expected to hear at once footsteps and a cry of astonishment, but three minutes passed and it was quiet as ever in the room. He made up his mind to go in. At the table, a man, unlike ordinary people, was sitting motionless. He was a skeleton with the skin drawn tight over his bones, with long curls like a woman's and a shaggy beard. His face was yellow with an earthly tint in it. His cheeks were hollow, his back long and narrow, and the hand on which his shaggy head was propped was so thin and delicate that it was dreadful to look at it. His hair was already streaked with silver, and seeing his emaciated, aged-looking face, no one would have believed that he was only forty. He was asleep. In front of his bowed head there lay on the table a sheet of paper on which there was something written in fine handwriting. Poor creature, thought the banker. He is asleep and most likely dreaming of the millions. And I have only to take this half-dead man, throw him on the bed, stifle him a little with the pillow, and the most conscientious expert would find no sign of a violent death. But let us first read what he has written here. The banker took the page from the table and read as follows. Tomorrow at 12 o'clock, I regain my freedom and the right to associate with other men. But before I leave this room and see the sunshine, I think it necessary to say a few words to you. With a clear conscience, I tell you, as before God who beholds me, that I despise freedom and life and health and all that in your books is called the good things of the world. For 15 years, I have been intently studying earthly life. It is true I have not seen the earth nor men, but in your books I have drunk fragrant wine, I have sung songs, I have hunted stags and wild boars in the forests, I have loved women, beauties as ethereal as clouds. Created by the magic of your poets and geniuses, they have visited me at night and whispered in my ears wonderful tales that have set my brain in a whirl. In your books I have climbed to the peaks of Elbers and Mont Blanc, and from there I have seen the sunrise and have watched it at evening flood the sky, the ocean, and the mountaintops with gold and crimson. I have watched from there the lightning flashing over my head and cleaving the storm clouds. I have seen green forests, fields, rivers, lakes, towns. I have heard the singing of the sirens, the strains of the shepherd's pipes. I have touched the wings of comely devils who flew down to converse with me of God. In your books I have flung myself into the bottomless pit, performed miracles, slain, burned towns, preached new religions, and conquered whole kingdoms. Your books have given me wisdom, 
All that the unresting thought of man has created in the ages is compressed into a small compass in my brain. I know that I am wiser than all of you. And I despise your books. I despise wisdom and the blessings of this world. It is all worthless, fleeting, illusory, and deceptive, like a mirage. You may be proud, wise, and fine, but death will wipe you off the face of the earth as though you were no more than mice burrowing under the floor. And your posterity, your history, your immortal geniuses will burn or freeze together with the earthly globe. You have lost your reason and taken the wrong path. You have taken lies for truth and hideousness for beauty. You would marvel if, owing to strange events of some sorts, frogs and lizards suddenly grew on apple and orange trees instead of fruit, or if roses began to smell like a sweating horse so I marvel at you who exchange heaven for earth. I don't want to understand you. To prove to you in action how I despise all that you live by, I renounce the two millions of which I once dreamed of as paradise and which I now despise. To deprive myself of the right to the money, I shall go out from here five hours before the time fixed and so break the compact. When the banker had read this, he laid the page on the table kissed the strange man on the head, and went out of the lodge, weeping. At no other time, even when he lost heavily on the stock exchange, had he felt so great a contempt for himself. When he got home, he lay on his bed, but his tears and emotion kept him for hours from sleeping. Next morning, the watchmen ran in with pale faces and told him they had seen the man who lived in the lodge climb out of the window into the garden, go to the gate and disappear. The banker went at once with the servants to the lodge and made sure of the flight of his prisoner. To avoid arousing unnecessary talk, he took from the table the writing in which the millions were renounced, and when he got home, locked it up in the fireproof safe. We invite you to like, subscribe, and rate our podcast on iTunes and wherever podcasts of real quality can be found. Have suggestions, music, or artwork for the show? Want to sponsor our podcast? Find our contact page and links to the items we talked about in this episode at www.mindfulnessofdoom.com. This podcast is recorded at the Center for Social Change in Miami, Florida. It is written, edited, and recorded by Brian Lemmerman and Corey Hardacre. Our music is by Pallet Town and can be found at soundcloud.com slash All poorly thought out opinions are ours. Nothing you hear in this podcast should be construed as professional medical advice. Go see a therapist, all of you. <laughs>